You're listening to the Apple Insider Podcast. You know that we have great advertisers that support the show and keep it free for you. One of the reasons we have advertisers that love the Apple Insider Podcast is that they know the show has amazing listeners. Right now, we have a survey that I'd like you to take to help us learn more about our audience. Just go to podsurvey.com insider. The survey will only take five minutes. We're going to ask you some questions about yourself and what you like to buy, but it's completely anonymous. Your answers help us find advertisers that are well-matched to you, your interests, and the show. When you're finished, you can enter a monthly drawing to win a $100 Amazon gift card. Even if you've taken a podcast listener survey before, I'd like to ask you to take ours and help support the show. Don't forget that you have a chance to win that $100 gift card. Once again, that's podsurvey.com insider. Thanks for helping us find the best advertisers so that we can keep the show free. Welcome to the Apple Insider Podcast, recording on June 18th, 2015. I'm your host, Victor Marks. We've got with us Daniel Aaron Dilger. Hi, thanks for having me. So glad you could make it. And rejoining us after a, uh, a brief hiatus is Mikey Campbell. Hello. Welcome back. Thank you. So I want to start right off. El Capitan and iOS 9 released at WWDC. Both of you are trying these out, right? To some extent, when it works. Okay. Uh, first of all, Mikey, what devices do you have these things installed on? Uh, I have uh, El Capitan on my 2013 MacBook Pro and iOS 9 on... Uh, it's a 5S, yeah, 5S. Okay. And you said when it works. So which which of those things has been giving you trouble? Um, well, both of them. iOS 9 more so, but I mean, that's to be expected from that platform for a beta. So um, there's there weren't really much in the way of changes um, to El Capitan, that, to the things that I use, so... It's basically the same OS for me almost. I don't really use a lot of the features that they're um, that they added on on a daily basis. Got it. Okay, so what is your top most loved change from iOS nine? Um, hmm, it's, it's a good question. What, Dan? Why don't you go first? I have to think about mine. Well, uh, for iOS 9, I haven't yet put it on my device. I have a problem with, I've been using an iPhone 6 Plus, and I think it has hardware problems. I'm having all, it feels like an Android phone. Oh my <laughs> like God. The, cam- the camera keeps crashing, and uh, the more stuff I put on the phone, the, the more issues I have with it, so I'm getting it replaced. Yeah, and that, that sounds like a bad memory. So, yeah, so that was that was holding up, being able to do a lot of in-depth testing, on anything, and of course, the first beta, it's it's difficult to um, get a sense of a lot of things because there's some features that don't work, and then of course, a lot of instability in general. And then you can't really put it, the first few betas on a production phone that you're using because yeah. it doesn't work well enough, and the battery life is problematic. So, I mean, they're for developers for testing features. For sure. Did, did you, Dan? Did did you um, test out Siri by any chance? Because Siri is not. Uh, it's not. It's basically the same one in that is in iOS eight point um, three. Is it any different for you? Because for me, it's not showing up. Or the new features aren't showing up. Yeah, I haven't seen any of the new stuff. 
yeah. actually working. All right, so I'm going to modify my question. And instead of what's your most loved change because you're using it, it's what is the feature you're most looking forward to out of these changes? Probably the the deep the um, the deep searches or the deep linking. I was uh, really spotlight. I was really impressed with that too. Just yeah. conceptually on a being able to search within apps, and that was one of the articles I I wrote. I think mm-hmm. that was the biggest news out of WWDC for for both users and developers because it has yeah. such a big impact on. Um, it not only makes it more useful, but it also for developers it, it takes their apps and makes content in their apps so much more uh, available to other people. So it's a actually a great form of advertising, and it's a meritocracy. So if you're doing something great, if you have a great service that people are searching for and finding that search result locally on their phone useful, then that's going to graduate into having your app be advertised to a lot of people who don't even have it yet. So developer, that was the most applause I heard at WWDC where developers cheering a couple times during that session because they saw the real relevance of that. Yeah. I mean, I haven't, I haven't had a chance to use the, uh, well, I tried to use the natural search, which is not functional for me yet, but I think that's going to play a really big role in this whole, um, in the, the deep, deep searches because of the way that um, OSX and iOS, they surface those results is going to be very important to uh, user interaction because I mean, uh, you know what, um, just searching for the word potato or something is, is going to bring up, it could bring up potentially hundreds of different answers, right? So, I mean, what, did, what, did, what was your feeling on the um, whole natural language input? Well, there's natural language and then like you're saying with being able to search for things that don't you're not searching for an app, say. Uh, mm-hmm. One of the examples they gave in the, in the in-app search session at WWDC was you, know, you could search for sprained ankle. Mm-hmm. And instead of, it's, it's, it's more like a Google-type search where you search for something and you get it on the page. You're not searching for, you know, what, what medical site do I want to go to that has good information and then try to look it up within that site. It's, you're asking a, a very specific question and Google's going to be, or I mean, Apple is going to be giving you search results that say, you know, here's a here's a document that says, that says this phrase on your computer, but here's also an app that a lot of people have found useful in the search results of looking up a sprained ankle in WebMD or something like that. So that's that's interesting in one direction. And then like you were saying with natural language search, being able to say things any way you want. And Apple's been doing a lot of interesting things that are sort of related to that with data detectors and being able to look at your document and see... Like when you get an email and it says, here's a contact, you can just put it in your contacts immediately. Um, same thing with calendar items. And they're getting better and better at picking out, it doesn't have to be a very specifically formatted, here's a, a date format that looks like this. It's a conversational thing about next Tuesday I want to do this. And it grabs all these nouns and formats them together in a, in a contact or a um, calendar event that you can just push a button and it's in your calendar. Yeah, well, I'm also ex- really good. On that note, I'm also um, kind of looking forward to um, the uh, sequential searches or the contextual searches, where it's like create a rep- uh, an appointment for this or reminder for that. You know, instead of saying create a, a reminder or remind me to I don't know email my girlfriend at ten o'clock. If it's in an email or something, I can just ask Siri to remind me 
about this. Right. right. So the the uh, syntax is no longer quite as important as it has been. Yeah. Hopefully that's uh, functional. Yeah. Like a contextual awareness about what you're talking about. And yeah. That's, that's all pretty cool. So my big favorite one that I'm looking forward to, and you guys are going to laugh. You're going to think that I'm lame. It's okay. I am. Um, I am looking forward to software OS updates becoming smaller and easier to update. And mm. I was excited by the idea that the update is going to run automatically overnight. Are you one of those people who have a 16 gigabyte iPhone uh, 6? Oh my God. My, so my wife's phone is an iPhone 5, 16 gig, and it was on iOS 7 all this past year when everyone else was using iOS 8 because it was simply too much trouble to try and manage the photos and clear enough space to run the update. Yeah, I've seen a lot of people that have a phone full of photos, and it's kind of sad to see them just throwing away their photos because they want to install the new update. Yeah. And it's it's a difficult thing for end users. If you're a non-technical user, what do you do with all this stuff? A lot of people don't have a computer. So I think that's great that they fixed that. I mean, it was a known issue that they needed to address. You know, yeah. I, I pulled out the lightning cable, and we, we spent about three hours trying to back up all of the images over USB. No one should have to do that. I said I said deep search was probably the most important thing coming out of WWDC, but my sort of favorite feature, something I've been kind of wanting for a long time, well, I guess now there's two. One is notes. Uh, notes has always been a really simple thing, mm -hmm. and I've always wanted it to become what they're talking about here, where it's more like a full-fledged word processor that you can actually put things in, but it becomes sort of a graphical file system. A lot of people, you know, when you're working with non-technical users, a lot of people use email, like Outlook, as their file system. Yes. They know where documents are. They know where conversations and lists of things because it's they're based on, they're connected to a contact and they're connected to a date. Well, or that was so, the benefit of using Gmail was that you yeah. could dump everything into Gmail as the file system and search on the person who sent it to you or anything else in the email and it would find it for you. So having the, that, so those same kind of like rich text tools that are synced between your devices, um, that looks promising. Um, one of the things that I'm personally the most interested in uh, is Apple News. And that's another thing that I you know, kind of had a, this wish list feature of I wish Apple would do, because I use Google News a lot. And um, there's, there's things to like about that. I mean, it's just like online. It's just a, a source of information. It's one of the things I... I think what I want to read about, I want to go to Google News and see what they're listing. But um, what Apple's bringing to the table is making it look nice. So they have their format that I think is going to be very similar to iBooks in terms of creating sort of rich data in a format that is nice to go through. So it's kind of like an updated newsstand, but they kind of got the business model better. Because I don't think a lot of people were interested in subscribing to things like a virtual magazine. And this is mm -hmm. closer to the web supported by ads, but it's supported in kind of a cleaner format that um, easier to find things that you're interested in as opposed to trying to find a subscription that you want to download. Yeah. Yeah. Did you, did you look at the, um, the iAd rates? It, they're pretty good for, uh, for people who publish on news. It, it was, isn't it the 30, 70 split? I think it's better than that. I was I don't re, uh, remember the numbers exactly, but I they have um, I think they have different tiers for, um, well I think I don't want to speak out of out of out of uh, line, but 
not outline. I don't you're, want to say anything you're incorrect. You're going to promise for Apple, aren't you? You're going to promise yeah, but I, deliver. I'm pretty sure the uh, the rates are very uh, competitive. Well, if you use IAD, they give you kind of a conventional split. I don't know exactly what it is, but uh, you can also advertise, you know, have your own advertisers. Right, so right. If you're publishing yeah. content and you already have an ad program in place, then they let you keep whatever you want. Yeah. I'm in- interested in the hum- human curation of that as well. Seems like uh, that's kind of the way everything is going these days. Down with aggregation. Yeah, that's it, it's kind of a parallel between Apple Music and Apple News. Another thing I was thinking of, Apple's using Apple a lot. There, there was a time, you know, one of the things Steve I, Jobs said was not using the Apple logo on everything and constantly saying Apple this, Apple that, Apple something else. And back in the day, I think there was more Apple. There was Apple Talk, Apple this, Apple something else. And then they went through this period of calling everything different brand names. And uh, Steve Jobs kind of created this I prefix, the iMac and the iPod and wasn't specifically everything wasn't a, uh, an Apple, and in fact, a lot of things were Macs. And now they're talking a lot of uh, a lot of their apps are Apple Music, Apple News, Apple something else, and then also the Apple Watch, Apple TV. So that's a kind of an interesting phase, I think. At this point, we're going to take a small pause and talk a little bit about one of our sponsors. So recently, I got a shaving kit from Harry's. Harry's provides really affordable razor handles and blades and shaving cream, moisturizing cream, and and makes a uh, a decent kit for shaving. Um, Shaving is a pain. To be honest, for me, shaving is is an annoyance. You get razor burn, you get nicks, you can get ingrown hair. It's just, it's annoying. And the cost of blades and cartridges for, for razors at the uh, at the you know the market or the big box store is kind of outrageous. So Harry's is about half the price of all the other big bland branded blades, and they ship for free to your doorstep. And it, to me, it feels like they're better too. You know, they were made in Germany, and Harry's just bought the factory in Germany. So instead of paying thirty-two bucks for an eight-pack of blades, it's half the price at Harry's. And with Harry's, you get a better shave that respects your face, your skin, and and your wallet. So. I'm really happy with that. The starter set is an amazing deal. For 15 bucks, you get a razor, moisturizing shave cream, and three blades. And with the promo code INSIDER, you get $5 off of that. So we all need razors that shave well and don't suck. And uh, and, and that's what I've been getting since I've been using this, this Harry's kit that I received recently. And I, I have to say, I really do like the moisturizing shave cream, and it is a smooth shave. So... For once, I don't feel like I'm spending all my money on, on crazy cartridges. Um, go to Harry's. Go to harrys.com, and Harry's will give you $5 off if you type in our coupon code, INSIDER, with your first purchase. And that's harrys.com, and you enter that INSIDER code for $5 off and start shaving better. So, Dan, I was talking with one of our listeners on Twitter who asked what your opinion was of how Apple Music could do in terms of performance, and will it cannibalize iTunes? Do you mean cannibalizing the, the idea of downloads, buying, buying music? Well, that's a good question. I mean, that's one way to interpret it, right? Is, is, but there's also the Beats 1 proposition. What does that do, and does the idea of iTunes as the application on the desktop, is that kind of going away? 
Well, if you look at iTunes, I mean, there's iTunes on the desktop that's very familiar. And iTunes on iOS has always kind of been broken up across a couple apps. And a lot of times it's kind of confusing and sort of disjointed. So you have music and you have videos and you have, um, more recently they came out with iTunes Radio that's sort of a page within the apps. And if you look at Apple Music, it's, it really looks like they took the sort of mess they had and are cleaning it up and making some of the services more premium. I mean, one of the features that they've introduced in the past was iTunes Match. And that's sort of a, a streaming feature, but it's limited to what's in your library or what Apple thinks is in your library. And um, what, what Spotify has really shown is that if you give people the ability to download anything, I mean, obviously that's awesome. You can listen to anything. So the problem is for Spotify, there's not very many people who want to pay for it. And so Apple is trying to make it, uh, they're trying to educate people how, why it's useful that, you know, giving a, a big enough package is useful enough that people are going to say, yeah, that's, I'll pay $10 a month for that. And, uh, like I think Spotify just said they have 40 million users and 10 million are paying, which I mean, is pretty good as far as streaming services go, but that's not, if, if only a quarter of your users are paying, that's kind of limited. So Apple's trying to offer kind of a similar product. The, I think the biggest differentiation is the family plan. I don't think Spotify has an exact match for that. Um, but it's a similar similar price. It's a similar package. Um, one of the, the biggest contention things with the uh, labels that we've been talking about is that Apple wants to give people 30 or three-month free trial during which labels wouldn't get paid and Labels are pushing back there. I mean, if you're a label, you're, you're looking at Apple, they have all this money, and you're thinking, why don't you just pay me? I think one of the sticking points is for Apple to subsidize a free period may be difficult. Um, it's not that Apple can't afford it, but it may be a, a dumping issue legally. Well, it also sets yeah. a bad precedent, doesn't it? Well, I, I mean, I don't know if it's, a, if it's a trial period, but I think in a... In a market where Apple's huge and they're trying to enter a market, yeah. they say, hey, the labels are giving you three months of free songs to try or three, three months of free listens. Right, and they're paying That's for a it. little bit different situation than saying, hey, we're paying the labels to give you a free product for three months. That becomes kind of a different situation because, I mean, if I were Spotify, I'd be saying, hey. Yeah, you'd be talking antitrust, right? That's Yeah, they're totally buying their way into the market by starving us to death for three months. So it's, um, I don't know how that's exactly going to play out. There's a couple labels that are, um, you know, they kind of ran to the press and said, hey, you know, this is terrible. Apple's. Apple has so much money and they're, they're cheating us. We're going to go out of business. I think that was, you know, that's a negotiating ploy because I don't think they're going to go out of business. Um, but yeah, I mean, right now it's kind of playing back and forth in the media. Cool. But otherwise, I mean, if you look at the features, they're kind of like the existing features of iTunes, um, embellished. So the, the streaming thing is new. The radio, the, the iTunes has had streaming internet radio for a while, but what Apple's doing is saying here, instead of just kind of random internet radio stations, we have one where we hired some of the best DJs that are known 
for having good programming and we're building a channel that you can listen to. And that's kind of their free tier. They're saying, hey, you can listen to this channel that we were programming and get a taste of what it's like to have actual people uh, showing you new content, showing you music and lining it up so that it's, it flows, which a lot of people don't realize that there's value in that. And a lot of what Apple's competing against in the streaming space is just sort of algorithms putting together songs. And a lot of what we heard on stage during the keynote were music industry people saying, you need people to do this. You can't just set up a computer program to deliver music. Right. So let me ask, what music services do you use, Dan? Uh, I have friends Spotify that I borrow. Um, nice. I, I, I use Pandora. It, <laughs> wait, is your it Pandora is a paid-for paid account? A paid-for account. Okay. Not on Pandora. I paid-for account on Spotify, but I don't specifically use it myself. It's my friend's account. Right. Um, Pandora, I've used in the past more often. I started using iTunes Radio. Um, I haven't, I haven't experimented a lot with iTunes Radio. I just kind of turn it on and, and have it play. And it seems to do a pretty good job if you, if you grab a category or a song and you know, use it kind of like Pandora. But there is, there's a limit to the range that you hear. Yeah. You know, it's kind of... So it's easy to get kind of stuck in a, listening to a trough of music. Um, but yeah, a lot of the, a lot of the music that I'm exposed to that's new is not an app. It's people. Uh, all right. I want to ask Mikey the same question. Mikey, what music services do you use? Um, I just have Spotify. Um, is that a paid for account? Yeah. For me, it's pretty, pretty worth it. Um, I find their algorithms to be pretty good. Uh, some of the, the, uh, user created playlists and stuff are decent and worth following. Um, I guess that's the way that I stumble upon new music. Um, but it's kind of like uh, if you try to do it yourself through Spotify, it, the the way that they parse the metadata or whatever, it's it's kind of like going around in circles. It's like if you you know you go down uh, looking for Aphex Twin or something, you'll run across the same bands after five minutes or so. You can't really branch out from there. Right. I found so um yeah i think I think um I agree with Dan, and there's a lot that a human curated or a human um generated playlist can offer but i i but I don't know if the public really believes that um it's kind of been it's kind of just become like marketing hype um especially after beats, yeah. I think but it's I definitely that's what Apple's marketing. And I yeah. know people are, are saying, hey, I have this problem with my Spotify is that it's too machiny and not personalized enough. I think Apple's pushing that. But at the same time, I think the main thing that, that Spotify has that Apple hasn't lined up yet is the content. I mean, Spotify oh, yeah, has a lot of stuff that you can't even get on iTunes, and that's the big yeah. deal. That's why it's so popular. And it's going to be a little bit, it's not going to be an easy thing for Apple, even though they have so much money and reach and everything to pull people over if they don't have those deals in place. Yeah, definitely. We'll see what happens with the antitrust stuff. <laughs> the, uh, yeah, the dumping and the getting the labels on board with royalty payments. Um, well that and pressuring, uh, pressuring labels with their iTunes power. Yeah. 
So we also had a big story that broke the other day about security on iOS and OS X. Mikey, can you summarize that really quickly for me? Um, sure. Well, Dan probably be better at this. Is it's in his uh, directly in his wheelhouse. <laughs> only, uh, only, I only wrote about it in passing. Dan un- understands the intricacies. Basically, uh, there's a there's a new uh, a new discovery supposedly that uh, some developers found. Um, they printed a paper uh, about it, thirteen pages. Basically, they're leveraging the keychain or Apple's keychain service. Um, and if you put in a uh, nefarious app, say, into the App Store, which they managed to do, it can connect with the keychain and pass along information um, in the background or, you know, basically that's what's going on. It's not exactly right, but uh, it's it's bad news for for people who use a lot of a lot of uh, passwords to protect their sensitive documents and do so across apps um, especially worrisome because uh, keychain is pervasive across both of uh, Apple's platforms well it's a part of the iCloud uh, password sharing isn't it yes okay it doesn't go in and uh, you know it harvest those passwords uh, by itself but it it can um, well the one that the Malware that they created was able to uh, go in, um, capture and rewrite passwords as they were being entered or um, you know sent between apps. Okay, so so Dan, break it down for me. How did the researchers implement this so it's a a workable example? So there's <clears throat> it's a class of problems they call it uh, cross app resource attacks, which you've that kind of sound probably reminds you of the security implications on the website. If you have multiple pages loaded and those pages are talking to each other, you're starting to get there's sophisticated ways to uh, for other processes to get control of things that they shouldn't have that are not quite obvious until you see them happening and then you're like, oh yeah, that's a problem we need to fix. And one of the things that this involves is he was talking about the keychain. It's not that that Apple wrote the keychain wrong and that apps can just go in and just have full access to the thing. It's that an app can save a keychain element that appears to be legitimate so that another app could be tricked into reading it or putting their passwords onto it. So there needs to be more security there. And also with something called, um, it's a web technology that a lot of apps use that allow it's um, a mechanism for them to trade information kind of like the web does where, where you have multiple applications talking to each other because they're sandboxed and they use web sockets to uh, send messages from one app to another. And it, it's a, a protocol that a lot of most apps know that, that it's not something that's secure because there's no, there's no security mechanism to say, to, to basically sign an encrypted message between these two apps. So they're just passing, it's like URL strings, they're, they're passing it. And if, if you have a URL that has a bunch of information in it, I mean, if one app logs you in and they send your, your username and your password in a URL back to the server, that's inherently insecure because you're communicating stuff that should be hidden and protected in a way that something else could intercept. 
And so this is a mechanism that apps would use, like if, if one app logs in via Facebook or something like that. So if apps are sending messages back and forth, they should know better than to have private information being sent in this mechanism because it can be intercepted. So the way it was reported, it was, you know, in, in typical fashion, it was reported as, you know, this huge crisis for iOS users and all their data is at risk. That's not really what's happening. It's a, a vulnerability that could happen if somebody exploited these mechanisms to do things. And if apps are doing things that they shouldn't be doing. So, so the sky is not falling. No, I mean, it is, there's, it's a serious set of issues that affect not only Apple's platforms, but any platform because these are kind of regular mechanisms of how, how it's happening. And as apps become more and more sophisticated and we're doing more and more with them and linking back between, between things and their apps are talking and we're logging into Facebook and this app kind of thing, uh, it's kind of the general progression of complexity that we suddenly realize, oh, wait, we need to have more security on this level. Okay. So should our listeners be concerned? Well, I mean, I would read up about it so you're aware of what's happening. And as always, be careful about the apps you load. Right. Uh, Apple's put a lot of effort into sand, uh, sandboxing apps and restricting what apps can do. And they really pioneered a lot of that because before, I mean, Google was really pushing this idea of like, yeah, let's just have everything be possible and everything be open. And it's like, well, actually, no, you have to think about what's going to happen. And Apple took a lot of ridicule for having this walled garden and you know, making sure that everything had to be signed and people were like, oh no, that means I have to pay $100 every year for a developer account. Yeah. So what we're finding is that Apple's approach is really, was really good, but you have to continually iterate on that and make sure that you're not allowing bad things to happen and that developers are doing things the way they should be. And there are some things here that Apple has to address and so that users aren't exposed to any sort of compromise that develops. Right, but as a, as a user, as a listener today, what should I do that are good practices? One thing is you can review what's in your uh, keychain. Make sure that there's not apps that are uh, saving stuff in your keychain that you don't know what they're doing. So um, I would read, there's some, there's some good articles. Um, one was on, one of the articles I saw was on iMora that really explained what's going on and what's involved. So being aware of what's happening and, and sort of trying to educate yourself on the subject is a good thing. Um, and then just being careful about the kind of things that you do and realize that when you install an app and you give it privileges, when an app says it wants to use your contacts, if you're not familiar with that app and what it does and where it came from, um, who the developer is, be very careful about what kind of access you give to things. And then also... Um, when you sign in and stuff, I mean, this is a lot of these issues are things that individual users don't want to have to worry about. I mean, that's that's why the platform is important. So, so, so I use a password manager, and and that password manager has a helper app, and and so let me ask: Am I should I be concerned about storing things like my bank password from my bank's website or a credit card in inside that password manager? Um, I don't think it's an immediate problem, but um, I would keep reading about the subject and be aware of what's what's going on with it. Mm -hmm. And you know, I think we should continue to report on it. And 
in a in a way to inform readers as opposed to you know creating these kind of clickbait stories. I've seen a lot of things that were written like the sky has already fallen and iOS devices are turning into molten lava in your pocket. It, it's not that kind of a problem. Okay. But um, it could be in the future. I mean, we have to be aware of what's happening and um, aware of what the fixes are and being proactive about. Um, so I, I'm I'm still reading about some of these issues to try to make sure that I know what I'm talking about when I discuss it. But uh, it's not an issue where things are actively chowing down people's passwords. But I'd be very careful about uh, looking into the legitimacy of a, of a developer who's offering to store your passwords, obviously. Right. And, oh, okay, I, I'm fairly confident about the legitimacy of the developer who's storing my passwords. But, uh, but certainly that's a reasonable thing to consider when deciding to take on a password manager program. Okay. I, I'd like to also talk about another listener question that we had. And the question was about the, the back button still being at the top of the phone when we have these very large phones. And, you know, clearly our thumbs don't reach the top of the phone if we're holding it with the, the bottom in the palm of our hand. And reachability has been Apple's solution, you know, where you double tap the, the home button and it slides the screen down. But the, the listener asked, is that really the right solution? Is that a half-hearted kind of solution? What, what should developers be thinking about differently when trying to make an interface accessible for everyone? Mm. Reachability uh, works as... as works First as, of all, as, do, however, you, do you use reachability a lot? Sometimes the problem with reachability, I mean, it, it works, but the problem with it is in practice, if you're navigating, it's an extra tap-tap between everything you're wanting to target on the top. There's a huge problem with the iPhone getting bigger. And I, we talked about this when the, when the iPhone 6 and 6 Plus first came out about, I mean, the 5-inch phone was kind of the perfect shape for, for a lot of people. I mean, I have really huge hands, but even... I mean, the 6 is stretching a little bit, and the 6 Plus is its frustrating to use. Even with two hands, it's kind of frustrating because it's just such a... The top of the screen is so far away from your thumb. And holding it like an iPhone... I mean, Apple really created this concept of holding a, a tablet computer that you navigate with one thumb. Yeah. Um, what I think needs to happen with... When devices get as big as a 6 Plus, and even the 6 to some extent is I think it's much more useful instead of being holding it straight up and down is to hold it sideways. And it becomes much more like the old sidekick kind of thing where you have both thumbs in play. So it's more like a little iPad than a big iPhone. And I think when Apple was preparing for the new 6 lineup, they did they had you know a lot to do to make it easy for apps to take advantage to make developers it's easy for developers to take advantage of the screen size and the the fact that the resolutions were changing because the iPhone had been very stable for a long period of time and so forcing application developers well actually giving application developers the tools to do more flexible layouts and being able to have a layout that kind of stretches to fit the screen um, we're, we're seeing it's a 1.0 effort and so I think Apple's going to address that more. I, would, I was kind of expecting iOS 9 to throw in more, and we may see this more as it comes later to fruition. But I would like to see it more useful in a wide mode where you could 
navigate things with two hands. I think that's more reasonable than trying to say, here's a huge, tall phone in a, in a big iPhone form factor. And to use the screen, you either have to hold it with one hand and tap on the other. Or, you know, reachability, like I said, it works, but it's an extra tap, tap step between every time you're touching the screen. So it becomes kind of a difficult. Yeah. It's, <clears throat> it's uh, I mean, for me, I have small hands. So even with reachability, I can't fully reach across to touch like the back button you're talking about or you know where it usually is um, even, even if I do um, invoke the reachability thing plus it's it's like a, I have like this muscle memory that kind of prohibits me from doing that for some reason or yeah, I forget about it yeah, yeah I just I just with this extra little step it doesn't really work yeah it doesn't click with my with my mind I just I've been doing it one way for so long that I just don't think about it and I, I reach for it with my and my thumb to the peril of my iPhone 6. Um, but um, I don't know what they could do. There's been a I – mean, Google has done um, a couple things with their apps um, as far as gestures are concerned. Um, kind of, you know, uh, their their Gmail app is pretty good uh, with their forward, back, and uh, operational gestures. So, I mean, they could do that. It's really – it depends, though, because uh, you don't want developers to be, you know, um, installing all these various gestures that are from, yeah. you know, changes experience from one app to the other, and you have to remember, it oh, what am I supposed to do? Yeah. Um, because even now I get upset when <laughs> when there's no uh, swipe from off screen to uh, to move back in, in an app, like when I'm browsing um, like an RSS feed or something. Uh, I have to tap something to move back where I'm used to, you know, swiping backwards from off screen, from off the left side of the screen. So, so to to maintain that experience, you're going to have to uh, make some guidelines, and I think those decisions are going to have to come, like Dan said, uh, soon, like with iOS nine or something, because um, those big screens are becoming the de facto standard for the industry. Here, Even, here's what I've been doing. Can I tell yeah. you how I was thinking about this? I, uh, I I hold the phone the way that I hold my iPhone, which is to have the, the bottom corner in about the palm of my hand. Mm-hmm. And I, I do that with both hands, and I swipe my thumb across and see where the, the skin oil and grease of my really nasty hands leaves traces on the screen. And basically anything below that is stuff I can reach, and anything above that is stuff I cannot reach without readjusting how I'm holding the thing. Right. And so anything that is something a developer wants me to do most often, anything that's the core functionality of the app, anything that's the reason why this thing exists, needs to happen in that bottom two-thirds of the screen that I can actually reach. And anything above that should be informational. I kind of arrange my apps that way. I call it the uh, circle of fire. <laughs> All the apps that I uh, use most are on the uh, bottom right quadrant of the uh, of the screen, so I are you a lefty? Access. No, I, I I hold it in my right hand, um, so my thumb is near the bottom right hand corner of the screen. So, and I usually one hand it, so um, I put all my important stuff down there. Yeah, the top row of apps is kind of that's for show. <laughs> yeah, it's too far away. Yeah. If you look at the alternative, I mean, like we're saying, you know, reachability isn't a perfect. Uh, fix for the, for the fact that you're having a, a phone that's just too big. 
Um, but if you look at the alternatives, I mean, what Samsung did was <clears throat> create a basically an iPhone 5 mode where it just shrinks the phone down to a small phone. So if you're using things that you want to navigate the whole screen, you're just not using the whole screen. And then if you want to, you know, take a photo or something and use it like an iPad, then you can have a full screen. I don't, that's also kind of a compromise. It's sort of, sort of dumb. I don't, it's hard to say the, the perfect way to do that because we're kind of in transition. We're figuring out what's, what's the most useful way to use a big screen because a small screen is just perfect for navigating, but mm. a, a, the bigger screen is just so much, it's so much nicer in terms of being able to see more and have more on the screen when you're reading, things like that. So it's just a, a trade-off between having more screen real estate and more pixels and having this one-headed navigation that was so great on the original iPhone form factor. But do you think they're going to um, maybe um, introduce something with force touch? You know, I mean, the, the rumors are out there. I'm, I'm assuming they're going to bring it to iPhone, but do you think they're going to do anything with that, Dan? Like maybe uh, some extra gestures to uh, maybe spiffy up the um, UI? Yeah, there's there. it's kind of interesting how they've implemented it, for example, on the watch. And I didn't immediately grab that I'm starting it's starting to kind of clue in that there's a lot actually with some of the sessions at WWDC we're kind of explaining the thoughts behind what was on the iWatch or the Apple Watch it's kind of interesting to to use it first and then see oh this is how you're supposed to be using it yeah, right. and one of the things with force touch is that it's a menu layer so instead yeah. of crowding yeah. the screen with buttons um, that, that do kind of functional things mm-hmm. or creating a, a very long interface. You have to scroll up and down to, to reach the buttons to do something. Um, you push on the screen and it's sort of like a, almost like a dashboard layer on top that yeah. has very simple buttons that, that look like they're, they're distinguished from the kind of colorful layout of the watch and that there's sort of gray utilitarian buttons that you can stop or clear your right. notifications, things like that. With the iPhone, you don't have the same problem with, with the watch, the screen is small and you don't want to obscure it with your fingers unless you're pulling up that layer. So it's, it's kind of like a different um, need or, or there's like a different reason to mm-hmm. use it. So having a big screen that you can't reach the top of, um, there are some interesting concepts of how you, would, how you could apply force touch to do kind of solve that problem because that's one of the biggest problems with the iPhone is that, you know, reaching the top of the screen when it's so big. Uh, and then on the Mac, it's it's applied even differently, where it's more of a contextual thing where you force touch an app or uh, you force touch an icon, and it gives you the most obvious thing to do with it, which is kind of open a preview or yeah, do some action to it. I'm kind of interested in, because of the bigger screen as well, they could have um, kind of localized force touch operations where you know you force touch on a specific icon instead of kind of apple watches you force touch anywhere on the screen basically and it invokes that thing so um yeah so i mean that kind of is interesting to me and uh, what what they could do with that but yeah i'm not i I don't know it'll be uh very interesting to see what happens when uh that comes out but oh yeah one more thing with the uh, with the force touch thing is that it the it does offer all of these extras um, extra menu layers like you say but it's kind of it doesn't come with a 
instruction book. So you kind of have to, you know, work with it yourself because they are contextual at times. So um, it's kind of a double-edged sword, I guess. Yeah, it's something you have to explore. And if yeah. if you force touch and there's nothing for it to do, it kind of does this little ripple. Like, yeah, yeah, that's cool. Here, <laughs> you, you came to the the force touch world, and there's nothing here for you. Go back. Here, I'll take yeah. you back. Now you're back. Nothing happened. <laughs> I kind of I kind of feel like uh, iOS seven was uh, kind of indoctrinating us into this whole layer concept thing, and it, it's you know, it's all been building to uh, to force touch on Apple Watch. And also cleaning things up so that you don't have, <clears throat> I mean, the whole idea of buttonless buttons or, you know, what, what do you call them? Uh, frameless buttons or borderless buttons. That's what it is. The idea that you don't need to have a graphical representation of a button. People understand that this is a, a word that's going to do something if I touch it. Yeah. That was clearly had the watch in mind when they were doing that. Yeah. Good stuff. Well, this has been the Apple Insider Podcast, recording on June 18th, 2015, with Mikey. You. And Dan. Yeah, that was lots of fun. And, and Dan, where can people find you on the internet? I'm on Apple Insider, of course, and also Twitter. Huh? I'm at Daniel Aaron, E-R-A-N. And Mikey, where can people find you? Also on Apple Insider, as well as... The Twitter machine at Mikey Campbell eighty one. Fantastic, and I'm Victor Marks. I'm at V Marks on Twitter, and if Mikey falls into his circle of fire, we'll tell you all about it next episode. Please leave positive reviews on iTunes. <laughs>